Um, I'm going to use the remaining uh, bit of our time here to try to wrap up this series in Exodus. Um, we've been in this, the book of Exodus for about 10 weeks now. And this past week, I was mostly just sad about all the things we didn't talk about because the book of Exodus is rich and there's so much in there that we skipped over because we just didn't have the time. Um, and so I wanna make a recommendation to you that I've made to you probably just about every week throughout this series, and that is to read the book of Exodus. I'm not asking you to read the whole Bible. I'm not asking you to like read the book of Exodus and understand everything. I'm just asking you to read it. Uh, it's 40 chapters. It's not a small task, but it's definitely something that you can complete. Um, I, I'm highly encouraging you to do so. This story is, is quintessential and foundational to the Jewish history and tradition, and their tr tradition and history is quintessential and foundational to our tradition. And so understanding this story is really important for understanding the shape of our faith and to traject the trajectory of our faith even, kind of knowing its roots and where it's come from. So read it, discuss it with your table group, form a, form a like growth group around it and have some dialogue around it. Maybe just write some things down as you're reading it and take someone out to lunch and have some conversation about it. Whatever you want to do, don't stop interacting with this book just because our series is over. Uh, that's just meant to hopefully prime the pump for more um, personal study on your own. That's my hope for you. So consider that, please. Today, I want to talk about three things really briefly as we kind of bring this book to a close. Uh, the first is uh, the tabernacle. Uh, the second is the tent of meeting. And the third is what I'm just going to call a liberated life, which is something I've, I've said quite a bit throughout the series, but haven't really defined. Um, and I think that it's a good summary of the book as a whole. Uh, but first, I want to call attention to something that you probably heard quite a bit about, or at least it's like somewhat familiar to you over the course of the past couple of years. You probably heard your neighborhood or your city, uh, or maybe even being around here, this idea of placemaking or place matters is something that you'll hear people say um, quite often. It's becoming a popular thing for cities to talk about because they're finding that um, a lot of people live in cities or in towns or whatever that are sort of a result of urban sprawl. And so the, the town itself feels almost accidental or even incidental. And people live there and they sleep there, but they don't really work there. They don't really shop there. And everything is kind of designed around getting from point A to point B in your car. And that makes a place feel very fluid and not very specific. And it's really hard to put down roots in a place like that. So cities and neighborhoods and towns and communities are having this conversation more and more. And it feels a bit like a new concept, but in reality, it's something that's been around for quite some time. The Project for Public Spaces puts it this way, placemaking place is not a new idea. Although Project for Public Spaces have been consistently using the term placemaking um, in uh, starting in the mid-1990s to describe our approach. Some of the thinking behind placemaking gained traction in the 1960s when our mentors like Jane Jacobs and William H. White introduced groundbreaking ideas about designing cities for people, not just cars and shopping centers. Their work focused on the social and cultural importance of lively neighborhoods and inviting public spaces. Jacobs encouraged everyday citizens to take ownership of streets through um, now, the now famous idea, Eyes on the Street, while Holly White outlined key elements for creating vibrant social life in public spaces. This idea has been around for quite some time that we start to think about our place, the place that we live or the place that we work as an actual location that has real people in it doing real things. And maybe there's a particular way in which we would engage that. And then for us as a church, we like to talk about it as God is doing specific work in specific places that are specific to that culture and people. And we are invited to join him in that specific work. 
but it's different from place to place. God tends to do work that's specific to the community that you find yourself in. Place matters. Place making matters. And when I was a kid, and Julie remembers this too, when, um, you know, uh, we would refer to Inglewood as Inglehood. It was just sort of like a pejorative term that people would use to describe Inglewood because it was a place that seemed like unsafe or, or dirty or something like that. Um, and since then, it's kind of changed a little bit, and now it's become kind of this like flyover city that people don't even recognize all the time. They might drive from like Littleton or Highlands Ranch down Santa Fe or Broadway or something and not realize that they've gone into a different city before they reach the city of Denver. It just sort of like blends in sometimes with some of its surrounding. But there's so much that makes Inglewood what it is, and the goal of the city right now is to think about how to make that so known and so present that it's obvious to everyone, whether they're passing through or they live here. I had the privilege of serving or speaking on a panel um, a couple of weeks ago to the Inglewood um, citizen planning class. There's about 30 people in the room, regular citizens and, and business owners who are just asking, how do we make this more of a place that we can put down roots in? And so I and a couple of other city leaders had the opportunity to speak to exactly that. This is how you make a place a place. This is how you make a place home. This is how you make a place rich with soil that you can put down roots in. That's one of the reasons why we moved here. It's one of the reasons why we want our kids to grow up here. One of our neighbors said it really well, actually, recently. They said, we believe Inglewood to be an accurate representation of a lot of cities uh, what cities are like around the country, and we wanted our kids to get a taste of the real world early on so they could become accustomed to it. We resonate deeply with that. We think that this place actually represents a lot of what our kids will experience in adulthood, and so the raising, raising them here is really important to us, and doing so strategically matters. Place matters. But it's not an idea that was started in the 90s or started in the 60s. It's not an idea of this church by any stretch of the imagination, the, ma the importance of place is something that God cooked up right at the very beginning. It's clear in the creation story. It's clear when Noah built the ark. It's clear um, when uh, Abraham was promised he'd have a huge family and then establish them in a physical, literal land. It's clear when Israel crosses the Jordan and enters into the promised land. It's clear in the law. It's clear in the divisions of tribes and the conversations around judges and kings. It's clear in the story of Jesus in his incarnation. It's clear as the first churches were planted. And it's clear today that place matters. Where you are right now, the soil you sit upon matters. It's history, it's people, it's culture, it's tradition, all of that matters. And yet sometimes we just forget about all that and we're so busy hustling from one thing to the next, we forget that the place we're in has deep and important significance. I think that's actually very, very clear to us and apparent to us in the stories of the tabernacle and the tent of meeting. And so as this, in this particular section, and it's like many chapters, which is why I won't read it to you because it would take all morning, um, but in this particular section in the story of Exodus, we see that not only does place matter, but where and how you worship actually matters. Like the physical location of your worship with other people actually has some significance. And so there's chapter after chapter describing the specification of this thing called the tabernacle. Tabernacle means to dwell or a dwelling place. And it's not so much about where the people will dwell. That's the camp. The people dwell in the camp. It's about where God's presence dwells. That's what the tabernacle is for. It's a place where God's presence dwells. And he gives chapter after chapter of specific uh, details about how that tent, about how that big, enormous, mobile worship center is meant to be constructed. 
The details are so specific, in fact, um, that we actually can reconstruct it today. Um, in fact, in Sarah's class right now in the conference room, she has a model of the tabernacle, and you can go in there and take a look at it. She's teaching the kids about it right now. About it. We have that much detail that much detail in what the tabernacle is and what um, it was supposed to be and what to look like. We, we, we can recreate the thing. It's a really amazing thing. But we get bogged down just like we do in the law and a few other things. We get bogged down in the details and we're like, why does it matter? Like how many, what is even a cubic, cubit is? And like, why does it matter like where they, these things are? And why does it matter what jewels are on the ephod of the priest? And we get bogged down on all these things and we maybe could use a bit of a zoom out moment a bit of a moment to take a look at what the point of all of that actually is. The tabernacle and the detail and the specificity by which God gives it to the people is communicating to us that where you worship, where you encounter the presence of God actually matters. It isn't to say um, that now in this current era in this current moment that God is present in some places and not in others. We, we know that because of the, the arrival of the Holy Spirit that God is ever present in, in a unique and specific way, particularly in us. But we know that from this story and from this explanation that the tabernacle um, communicates to us an invitation to worship God in a particular way in a particular place. You see, the camp was designed around the tabernacle. So the tabernacle sat in the middle, and then the rest of the camp basically looked like the tabernacle in its shape, okay? Because it was sort of like, probably created in like concentric circles outside of the tabernacle. And so that became the centerpiece of the entire camp or the entire town. And everybody sort of um, uh, rearranged their lives physically and figuratively around that thing that was sitting in the middle of the camp. And they were invited to create a rhythm by which they would engage God together. The tabernacle reminds us of something that's true for us even still today, that we are invited to a corporate worship experience on a regular basis. You are invited to develop a rhythm of worship with other people in a physical location. Very simply, what I'm doing right now is inviting you to church, okay, which is where you are right now. I'm inviting you to consider developing a rhythm by which you encounter the presence of God with other people in a specific location. That's the invitation today. Consider how you will tabernacle or how you will experience tabernacle. Again, with other people, the purpose of the tabernacle was to experience God with other people in a very specific location. This building right here used to be an auto parts warehouse. It wasn't even like an auto parts store where you would come and like, get your car fixed. It was like a place where a mechanic would come and buy stuff that they would then take to their shop to fix your car. People think that that's why we have garage doors, but we actually added those garage doors. Those were not around. This was like a big warehouse for mechanics to come and buy stuff. And when we bought it and started to renovate it, we, started to, we, we began to, to think about the purpose that we would use it for, and we designed the building to, um, to be used for a very specific purpose. It's actually designed to be used for several purposes, which is why you don't see a lot of like religious iconography and whatnot around here. Uh, we would have more of that if it was just to be used as a church, but we were meant to. It was meant to be used for several different um, purposes, and and the way that it's designed is meant to execute that and to and to accomplish that. A physical location where you worship with other people does in fact matter. It doesn't have to be ornate. It doesn't have to be, you know, this, this wild and amazing, like mind-blowing thing. That's very cool. If you ever go into like a cathedral or something, that's a very amazing experience. 
It doesn't have to be that way, but it does matter where you arrive to worship and encounter the presence of God. You know, we're having conversations, as I've shared with you before, um, about maybe moving to a different location. This location, even with two services, doesn't always feel um, like it's going to fit our church, and we need to go to a different location where we have more room. Um, And I also like to consolidate back to one service that would feel a lot more unified as a church. And so we're looking for places in Inglewood that would allow us to do that. And believe me when I say that we are paying very close attention to the way these places are designed. We're paying very close attention to their physical location because all of that really matters. But again, the invitation for you is to consider developing for yourself a rhythm by which you worship with other people the way, like, a rhythm by which you tabernacle with other people and, and experience the dwelling, uh, indwelling presence of God in a physical location with some kind of a rhythm. The second thing that happens in this big chunk of text that we're tackling today um, is something that happens on a more personal level. It's not a call or an invitation to a corporate rhythm, but more of an individual one. In chapter 33 um, of, of Exodus, it says this, Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp, some distance away, calling it a tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp, and, anywhere, and wherever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose to stood at the entrances of their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke to Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance of their tent. And the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one would speak to a friend. This tent of meeting, this thing that, uh, that Moses would go and pitch outside of the tent was not a place where he dwelt or the place where he lived. It was a place where he went to personally worship. And it sounds like from the very beginning of this text that anyone who wanted to inquire of the Lord was able to go and access God in that particular tent. It was like a miniature, like, like personal tabernacle. It was a way to engage God, to pray, to listen, to worship, whatever they wanted to do, uh, but in an individualized setting. And here we see a juxtaposition, two stories, one about the importance of a physical place to worship together, and the other about the importance of a physical place to worship alone. And and we have an invitation here in these stories for us to consider how do we develop the corporate rhythm of physical uh, worship and the individual rhythm of physical worship. For you, it might be like a route that you walk in your neighborhood. It might be uh, like a, a trail that you ride your bike on. It might be a room in your house, or it might be like a particular place in your neighborhood, or it might be a place up in the mountains that, where you feel like you can get away and you can hear from God. Maybe you're pitching a tent in your backyard. I have no idea how you do this, but developing a simple personal rhythm where you can separate yourself from the regularities of life and simply rest and listen for God. That that is, is something that we, I think, have taken for granted because it's so available and accessible to us. We also tend to be a people who are so obsessed with the possibilities that are out before us that we never pick one particular thing to do because technically we could do 15 or 20 different things, right? My recommendation to you today is to consider one place, one rhythm, one way that you as an individual can encounter God, that tent of meeting sort of opportunity. In the same way, I'm encouraging you to to be here with us to worship together on a regular basis in a physical location. I'm encouraging you to find a place that you can on a regular basis encounter God as an individual person and hear from God and interact with the presence of his spirit. 
the tent of meeting and the tabernacle invite us to two different things. In, in some way, they're very different because one is corporate and one is individual. And in some way, they're exactly the same because they're both inviting us to consider how physical locations can matter for the worship of God's people. Lastly, I just want to wrap up this book by taking a big zoom out, broad brush description of the book itself. I want you to think about how you would describe the book of Exodus in as short of terms as possible to somebody who had never read it before. Now just think for a second, like how would you describe this wild, intricate story to somebody who maybe never heard it before? We had a quote, a sentence from N.T. Wright last week that I think was helpful. The first half of Exodus is about getting God's people out of slavery. The second half of Exodus is about getting slavery out of God's people. That's important. But if I were to boil it down to one word, one single word, the book of Exodus is about liberty. It's about liberty. And we hear a lot about that word these days, usually in rants about religious liberty, but I think that the liberty that we're talking about here, the liberty that's being offered to us is bigger than that. It's a more of a whole life, all-encompassing liberty. It's an invitation for God followers to live their life free from slavery, be it slavery to others, slavery to sin, slavery to wealth, slavery to addiction, slavery to body image, slavery to fear, whatever it is, we are invited to live as a free people. This is something that God has extended to his people, and the book of Exodus is a long and intricate story about getting his people into slavery, getting his people into liberty, and then getting that liberty sort of into his people. There's a a little passage here in chapter 34 that I want to close with, Uh, starting in verse 4. It says, so Moses chiseled out two stone tablets. He broke the other ones. I don't think we got to that story, but he was very angry, so he smashed them. He's got to make new tablets. Moses chiseled out two stone tablets, like the first ones, and went up to Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him, and he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him, proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. When I, when I think a little bit about what does a liberated life actually look like, it looks like this. Compassionate, gracious, patient, loving, faithful, forgiving, and just. This is not only the characteristics of the God that we serve and worship, and therefore elicits in us a worshipful response, but it's also a characteristic that we could shape and form our lives around. Notice how much similarity there is between this list and the fruit of the Spirit. These are the things that should be descriptive of followers of the way of Jesus. Those of us who are living a liberated life will look like this, compassionate, gracious, patient, loving, faithful, forgiving, and just. That is who we will be as we develop a a liberated life, as we follow the way of Jesus together. A place and rhythm for corporate worship matters. A place and rhythm for personal worship matters. And every one of us is, is invited to live a liberated life that is offered to us by God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for an opportunity to take a look at Exodus um, over the course of the past 10 weeks. Thank you for um, the ways that it has encouraged me and convicted me. Thank you for the things that we've learned about you through this time that were new to us and the reminders of things that we already knew about you but needed um, our memories jogged. 
Pray, God, that uh, the, some of the themes or ideas from this book would take root in our lives and they would shape the way that we live. This wouldn't be just a one-off experience, but something that really shapes us um, for time to come. We love you and we pray these things in your name. Amen.